As you take your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, specifically verses 2 through 6. Colossians 4 verses 2 through 6. This past week, we traveled and saw family on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, which meant we had four Thanksgiving meals with family across Mississippi. And one of the common conversations at each of our destinations was who has been or who might be contagious. There was a good bit of flu going around, at least our part of of friends and family. And so we were coming to places with them saying, we have gotten over this, we are not contagious, or we were coming to places saying, he is not here, she is not here, because they might be contagious. You know, in life, there are a lot of things that we do not want to share. When you start thinking about being contagious or contagions, these are things that we don't want to give out bountifully. These are the things that we do not want to share with generosity. As a parent of a 12-year-old, 10-year-old, and 6-year-old, rarely do we go on trips that one might not say coming or going, mom, my stomach hurts. And then we lay hands on that child that (laughs) the demonic presence of a stomach bug be exercised lest it be shared with his brothers and mom and dad also. So there's certain things that we want to quarantine. There are certain things that we do not want to share, one of which is not your faith. We are called to generously share our faith. We are called to be, in the words of Bill Hybels decades ago, a contagious Christian. What does it look like to live a life that is contagious? What is it like to share the hope of Christ inside of you to neighbors, to family members, to friends, and to even co-workers? Well, the Apostle Paul, as we come to the conclusion of his letter to the church at Colossae in verses 2 through 6, explains for us two characteristics of contagious Christianity. In Colossians chapter 4, we read Paul's words that come at the end of his letter. Now, before you move on and have a bias against conclusions, it's important for you to see that it's more than just a roll call of people that he is sending to the church or even uh, that are greeting the church. When you come to Colossians chapter 4, you'll see a lot of names here. And it's tempting to just skip or skim this book or this chapter here in this wonderful book. He says, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. I'm sending Onesimus with me. Aristarchus, who is a fellow, a fellow prisoner, greets the church. So you have a long list of names here. But the prelude to the names, the introduction to that roll call at the end of his letter, which is very much akin to how he ends many of his epistles, if not all of his epistles, is these four verses that remind us of what it looks like to be a contagious Christian. Verse 2, chapter 4 reads, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought 
to speak. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Two characteristics, church, of a contagious Christian. The first characteristic is that you would be a person that consistently speaks to God about people. Verses 2 through 4, a contagious Christian consistently speaks to God about people. Notice how he starts, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Notice this is the transition that's going to land the plane of the book of Colossians here. And the first thing that he implores the church to do is to continue steadfastly in prayer. He bookends the book of Colossians with this call to prayer. He tells them in chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, this is how I'm praying for you. Now, as he concludes it, he ties the book together by saying, this is how I call you to pray for me. So it begins with prayer. It ends with prayer. I remind you of verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, as he's coming to the end, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. When we think about being a contagious Christian, when we think about uh, creating a culture of gospel-centered conversations in our church and in our families as believers, when we think about sharing the hope of Christ that is in us, it is real tempting to think strategy. It's real tempting to think program. It's real tempting to think, I need to sit through an eight-week class and to learn all of the intellectual obstacles that one might potentially have to disbelieve the truths of the Christian faith. And once I'm armed with this apologetics, once I'm armed with this faithful defense of the gospel, then I can go out and share my faith. But it needs to be said that there's some answers that this side of heaven we will not have. Uh, yes, there's 2,000 years worth of the defense of the faith, but if you're waiting to have this infallible answer to every potential objection, you will never share your faith because you will always be paralyzed with the what-ifs. What if they ask me this? What if I can't answer them adequately? Notice how Paul frees us as believers to share our faith by starting with the basis of prayer. Continue to steadfastly be a person of prayer. Now, in the way he describes the prayer life that he is imploring us to, he tells us to be watchful in it with thanksgiving. We are called to be thankful Christians. And one of the ways that thanksgiving and gratitude is displayed in your life and in my life is by our prayer life. It's important for you to understand that there is a divine ordering and structure to a healthy prayer life. There is to be a vertical direction of our prayers and a horizontal direction of our prayers. When Jesus gives us the model prayer, there is the vertical, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then it moves to give us today our daily prayer or give us today our daily bread. And so it's important for you and, and for me to be reminded that we don't need to skip the vertical praise of God in prayer, thanksgiving to God in prayer, and move directly to petitions. Our praises precede our petitions. And our praise of God and to God oftentimes changes what we petition of God. 
You see, our family, like your family, is making a list. If you have children, your children are checking those lists twice. They're, they're trying to be very strategic in what they ask for for Christmas. And so you're receiving that list. You're thinking carefully about what, who's going to receive what. How are we going to uh, spread the Christmas cheer in your family? And at times we can take that kind of Christmas wish list into our prayer life. The God is a divine Santa Claus who is waiting on pins and needles to hear your petitions. And he has no other concern than to answer your every whim, your every wish, your every desire. And we reduce prayer at times to, to fumbling for some loose change that we call prayer, depositing it into the divine vending machine, and then putting A2 or B4 and out plops what we have requested. And that is prayer that is absent from the vertical dimension. That is prayer that skips praise and moves to petition. And if our prayer life is petition only, we miss a healthy grounding of what God desires to do in you and in me. Our thanksgiving and our gratitude, our praise of God is a basis for what we then ask of God. It seeks and changes when we seek ye first the kingdom of God. Then all of these things will be added unto you. But all of these things get transformed when you seek ye first. And so Paul reminds us to, to not let thanksgiving be a speed bump on the freeway of your prayer life headed to the destination of ask and petitions. That thanksgiving and gratitude sets the foundation. What are you thankful for? Isn't this a great way for Paul to lead us as we come to the Sunday after Thanksgiving? To think back, no matter who won last night, who uh, lost last night, no matter what you're wrestling with with your health, no matter the challenges of family dynamics as everyone gathers together and, and you love family, but too much family can be too much family. And some of the family dynamics can turn into a family feud. And there are probably all of us that have been in those situations. But no matter what, you have come to church. And the past weeks have been beautiful or maybe trying. You have much to be grateful for. Do you know that, believer? Do you know that if you woke up this morning and you got out of bed, you have much to be thankful for? Do you know if you woke up this morning, you got out of bed and you happened to walk outside and you saw the canvas of creation that we know as the crisp morning of a fall day in the metro Birmingham area that you have much to be thankful for as you look at the infinite intricacies of his creation that surround you and say, if he has done this, how beautiful and infinite and gracious is our God. If you woke up this morning, you got out of bed, you walked outside, and there's been a time in your life where you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you have been rescued, you have been redeemed, you have been saved, you have much to be thankful for. But notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't stop with petitions. 
Notice the Apostle Paul doesn't stop with praises, but he moves to petitions. Just like the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't stop with hallowed be thy name. It moves to thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It moves to give us today our daily bread. What is the daily bread that Paul is asking for the Colossian Christians to uh, seek the Lord on his behalf for? Well, we notice it in verse 3 and verse 4. We read it here that God may open a door to us for the word. Verse 3. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Notice what he doesn't ask the Colossian church to intercede on his behalf for. He doesn't say, pray that I would get out of prison. Most likely, historically, this is coming after Acts 21. Paul is most likely in house arrest and Roman imprisonment. He is most likely chained to a guard the majority of the day. He doesn't mention anything about God miraculously setting him free. He says, I'm in prison. Pray that I might have wisdom to be able to allow the word of God to come in here and that the mystery of Christ might be proclaimed. It's a great reminder for you and for me, the word of God does the work of God for the salvation of people, that the word has a power to it here. And Paul is saying, pray for me that I might be bold in proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. That phrase, the mystery of the gospel, oftentimes can be elusive to us. We think mystery, we think Sherlock Holmes, we think mystery, we think a P.D. James mystery novel, uh, Agatha Christie, this is not the mystery that Paul is referring to here. The mystery of Christ was a shorthand that Paul would use to talk about how in the Old Testament there was a veil. God says in Genesis chapter 12, I'm gonna bless Israel. Israel is gonna be a blessing to all the nations. All the nations are gonna see me through Israel. Israel is disobedience. Israel, it goes into exile. So how Will Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be declared as glorious when we see all of the difficulties of the Old Testament here? Well, the mystery of God is, is how Jesus Christ comes and becomes the perfect Israel, and how through Christ, not only will the Jewish people know him that trust him as Savior and Lord, but the great mystery of the gospel is being shared to Gentiles, many of which we are here because... The mystery of the gospel has been proclaimed to us outside of ethnic and religious Judaism. And so we come here and we begin to see how the Apostle Paul is saying that I need you to pray that I might have opportunities for God to open the door for the message of the gospel to go forth in my circumstance. And what a great reminder for you and for me that Prayer precedes the salvation of our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. And that all of us that are in this room have the great opportunity to bend our knees on behalf of those who do not know Christ as Savior. There was the first great awakening in American history. There was the second great awakening in American history. But there was a, another movement of God that occurred after the Civil War that was a powerful movement. It was called the Businessmen's Revival. The Businessmen's Revival. Post-Civil War, our nation, as you know, was immensely divided. 
Our nation was in the midst of economic collapse. 1857, stock market crashes. Uh, Chicago banks are, uh, go under. Philadelphia banks, they fail. There's a rush to New York City upon the banks there. There was tremendous economic instability. There were many just quote-unquote middle-class businessmen that lost their jobs. Jeremiah Lampfear in New York City at a church that's no longer there, the North Dutch Church, September of 1857, says at lunchtime at 12 o'clock, all of us that are here are going to be invited to the third floor of the North Dutch Church there in New York. He advertises opens the doors, six people show up. They pray. Next week, he advertises, opens the door, six become 20. They sing and they pray. The next week, they open the door, they've advertised, the 20 have become 30. And in the course of a year, uh, some scholars or historians, they estimate that more than 10 thousand people gathered in separate prayer groups from 12 to 1 singing and praying. No great personality, no George Whitfield to point back to, no Jonathan Edwards to point back to, an ordinary businessman who bent his knee and called people like himself to pray. And you know the fruit of that? From 1856 to 1859, 475,000 people became Christians in that movement that was brought about primarily by people praying and asking for God to do a mighty work in their, in their presence. And when I look back upon my life, I see how God does this. I hope you can see how God does this, that we oftentimes do not have opportunities to have gospel-centered conversations and to share our faith because we ask not for those opportunities. In a previous church, we covenanted together many men to meet in groups of three to five. Many of you have been a part of that. Uh, we studied God's word together. We prayed together. We held one another accountable by various questions. But one of the things that we started in that group was to say, each of us have a person that we are called to share the gospel with, and we are terrified to do that. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker. We're not the judge, but the fruit of their life doesn't point to the seed of salvation being in their soul and in their heart. So we covenanted at the outset that in this nine-month period, we will pray that God would open a door for us to be able, in a natural way, to share, to be contagious in our faith. And it was an amazing thing. We started this, so many were skeptical, including this pastor. I can never do this. I can never go to that person. I can never have a real natural conversation about this. They're so resistant but for some, it was six weeks. For some, it was for six months. Some, it was a year and a half later. But in the group of four guys, each one of them had a story like this. I started praying for Bob. Bob's the guy at my office that is so antagonistic to the church. He's the one that sort of picks on me about being a part of church. He kind of picks upon me as I use some of my vacation to go on a mission trip. And so I've been praying for Bob, but I'm going to pray every day for Bob. And you know what happened? Two weeks ago, we had a funeral. 
and we were all caravanning to the funeral. And out of all the people that Bob could have happened to ride with, he rode 40 minutes to the funeral visitation. He rode 40 minutes back. And in the midst of going to that visitation, there were things that were stirring in his mind. And he opened up the conversation in my Toyota Tacoma. And those kinds of stories begin to spread. And to be able to look back and to see how God desires the salvation of the bobs of your uh, workplace more than you do. That God desires to save your uncle, your son, your daughter, your father, your mother, your friend, your neighbor, much more than we do. As Malcolm Muggeridge says that God is the hound of heaven that is pursuing those, drawing them, wooing them. But he desires to use you, to use me to be that mouthpiece. And for many of us, we will not go there and we're so timid and we're so terrified. But if you would bathe those conversations in prayer, I am here to tell you God will amaze you at the opportunities that he would put before you if you would consistently talk to God about people. How else are we contagious Christians? Well, Finally, this morning, the second point is that not only do we consistently speak to God about people, but we are called from God's word in Colossians chapter four, verses five through six, to wisely speak to people about God. Verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's so much practical freeing wisdom that is inherent in these passages here that help us know how to spread our faith. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What is Paul saying? He, he, He is saying, give us this day our daily bread. Your daily bread is not just your paycheck. Your daily bread is not just being able to provide and put food on the table. Uh, daily bread is, is everything that you need to be faithful in what God has called you to do. And so he's praying that he would be able to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, those that are outside of the family of God here. How can we be wise and winsome in our faith and not just steamroll people with the gospel of Jesus Christ that oftentimes pushes them further away, but how can we, in Paul's word, make the best use of our time? You see, in the first century world, there was, as scholars say, an eschatological expectation. What does that mean? Well, it means that in that first century world, many had seen the risen Lord Jesus, many had observed his ascension, and they were longing in an imminent way for his second coming, his return. They were saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus quickly. Now, we know that he is coming back quickly. For a day is like a thousand years, Two days, 2,000 years. So in his divine ordering, in his divine time plan, he is coming back and we should always live in expectation of his coming. Now, we have marching orders. We don't have to think to ourselves, when is he coming back? We don't have to spend endless amounts of time in speculating about the actual occurrence of his second coming. We missed uh, my wife's grandmother in Longview, Mississippi. This is the second or third Thanksgiving that we have not gone to her home. She's with Jesus in heaven and she was the matriarch of my wife's uh, mother's side. And we would always, that was a destination, that we would always have Saturday Thanksgiving there at her home. 
And one of the great joys about her is she was so wise. I oftentimes would remember her saying to me in just a real sweet way, David, I, I'm not a amillennialist. I'm not a postmillennialist. I'm not a premillennialist. I'm a panmillennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end, she would say. And there's just a lot of wisdom. I mean, she didn't go to seminary to say, I mean, the wisdom in that was we can spend all of our time with endless speculation of the actual events of his second coming and miss what is so clear to us that we do not have infinite time here on this earth. Whether you meet him in his second coming or you meet him in death, how you invest that dash between your date of birth and the date of his return or the date of your birth and the date of your death is something that he's given us clear marching orders on. And we find them here in verse 5 to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of our time. Well, what's the best use of our time? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is a great, freeing reminder. There's some of you, when I start talking about being a contagious Christian, there's some of you, when I start talking about sharing your faith, you are paralyzed with fear and trepidation. You think sharing your faith is memorizing the speech and knocking down somebody's door and they answer the door and you cold cock them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? And then that's, that's the way you think of contagious Christianity, spreading your faith. Now, I am sure that there's probably someone in here that has been saved through that kind of gospel presentation. Praise God for it. And I am sure that God in his infinite wisdom will use the gospel to be spread in a myriad of different ways. But many of you in this room are paralyzed when you think that that's the only way that you can spread the gospel. Many of you hear of people that are pastors or evangelists, they get on a plane and they have witnessed to all the flight attendants and they've witnessed the pilot and the pilot becomes a Christian between uh, Birmingham and Memphis and, and, and you think to yourself, I just could never do that. Well, guess what? I don't want to do that. I don't know if this is encouraging to you or discouraging to you, but when I get on a plane, I don't first and foremost think to myself, how am I going to have a gospel-centered conversation with all these people around me? I put on headphones, I read a book, I am timid oftentimes in my faith, so I have to pray for boldness. I have to pray consistently and specifically to share my faith, just like you do, just like you do. But what the Apostle Paul says that when you're consistently praying for those opportunities, you don't have to be the green berets of the Christian army. You don't have to be the Navy SEALs, the, the few and the proud, the elite who are going in and you're the spear right there, the spear right there that is, that is attacking lostness, that in actuality, when you are covenanting with God because he desires the salvation of those that you're coming in contact with, he is saying that he will lead you to let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That means that there are people that are intersecting you with gospel Center type of questions. It, it reminds me of what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we're sure in the message of the gospel 
And there are people because of circumstances, because of difficulties, because of opportunities that will intersect you in a divinely ordained appointment and they initiate through God's sovereign activity a opportunity for you to say, you know something, I've been there. But let me tell you what's given me hope. I remember at my previous church looking out on the campus of Mississippi College and seeing hundreds of international students. Our church was uniquely positioned to be right there on the college campus. We were adjacent to it, but the campus grew and we were really in the center of the campus. So we began to pray, God, what would you have us to do when there are hundreds of of students from India that you have brought here, you have brought the nations to our backyard. What are we called to do when a hundred students from Iran are right here and we have this strategic opportunity with the proximity that we have, how can we? So we begin to programatize things and strategize things and those things are very important. We're hiring people. We're bringing about concerted efforts. There, our gym is filled up with, with gently used furniture as international students are coming here and they don't have things to fill up their apartments. And so we are able to say, come here and let's have a conversation. We'll help you load it in to your apartment or into your dorm. Good things. Hey, we can rent out the coffee shop here and we can have a safe time to have friends that are there along with international students. We can have a meal every month and it could help people know where the banks are and know some of the practical things just to build relationships here. So we did that for years and and another year. And an amazing thing began to happen that I saw that was beyond our programs, beyond any kind of strategy. It was just faithful believers that were covenanting to pray for this specific opportunity. And so I would have a ministry assistant that would say, there's a young lady who came in. She doesn't look like she's from here, but she wanted to find what she said was the holy place and she's just praying. Well, in Clinton, Mississippi, if you are a Hindu, and you're looking for a temple, and you don't have a car, the closest thing you're going to get to that is the Baptist sanctuary that you can walk to. And an interesting thing began to happen. Sometimes it was every two weeks. Sometimes it was every four weeks. Sometimes it was twice a month or, or a different timing. But I'd have an assistant say, there's a young couple that's here that want to talk with you. Or there's a young man that is here that wants to talk with you. International students who were dealing with everything that 18 and 25-year-olds deal with, stress, relational issues, homesickness. But in their religious culture, they needed a priest who would pray for them. And again, in Clinton, Mississippi, if you don't have a car, the closest thing that you get to a priest is the Baptist preacher that's right there. And so I said, send them on. I'll be their priest because I know who the great high priest is. There was no program for that. There was no strategy for that. You know what that was? It was the Holy Spirit honoring the faithful intercessory prayers of that faith community. And I'm here to tell you, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, God desires to spread his fame and his name 
And he wants to use you to do it. He does the saving because he's doing the wooing. But you have a strategic role to play. So don't fear. Don't be paralyzed with trepidation. Because he is the author and perfecter of not only your salvation, but your friend and your family member's salvation. You know he's working in the background to save them. And he's orchestrating an encounter that if you would say yes to the opportunity, he wants to use you to spread the hope of Christ that is in you. Let us pray for those opportunities.